love to invite you all to stand as we read the Word of God today. So this is Genesis 22, verses 1 all the way through to 18. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took his him uh, sorry he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, "Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you." Abraham took the wood from the burnt offering and placed it, uh, placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abra- his father, um, his father Abraham, Father, <laughs> sorry, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went together. When they reached out, reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him there on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time. And he said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities and of their enemies. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good afternoon, New Life Brisbane. So exciting to be here opening the word of God together. Alex, thank you so much for that welcome. I hope I do the text half as much justice as you said I would. Um, But hey, I come from Cooley, where Brisbaneers seem to go on holiday, Um, which means I've met a bunch of you at times before, and I get to hear what's going on up here uh, from relaxed, holiday-going Brisbaneers. And one thing I've heard over and over and over again from this community is how beautiful the formative desire of this community is, that people in this room are desiring to be more like Jesus 
as a community. And I've just heard, it's like not just one voice or two voices. It's this continuous thing that people are saying, the New Life Brisbane is striving to be more like Jesus in Brisbane, in this city. And so I'm pumped to be here uh, sharing the word of God. We will, uh, if you have your Bibles, I'm gonna invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 22 with me. We're gonna be working our way through this text. But hey, maybe you're here for the first time. We're in a series at the moment on the book of Genesis. We actually started this series about a year ago. We started this series by looking through Genesis chapter one all the way to chapter 11. And in this section of text, what we see is a God who created because he is creative. And everything he made was good because he is good. We see a God who brought life because he is life bringing. And we see a God who made humans and invited those humans into relationship or partnership with him. It lasted a short while, but a few moments in, humanity kind of got over it and said, we want to take control. It's, it's a, I don't know if anyone else in this room can relate when, you know, God says, go this way, and you're kind of, you know, God, shush, I've got this. I know what I'm doing, you know. That, that tendency for us to take power and not let, not let God have it. And humanity did this in the next eight chapters, all the way to chapter 11, we discovered how brokenness, punishment, destruction, wrath, hurt, and wretchedness just consumed humanity until they could no longer function the way God had designed them to, and death reigned over the earth, and then we finished our series, and everybody left happy. (laughs) And so we picked up again this year, and we opened Genesis 12. And something we noticed straight away has shifted. No longer is it about this broken relationship, this broken partnership between God and all humanity. Suddenly, it's about God pursuing partnership with one family, Abraham and his descendants. God promised to Abraham, well first God called Abraham and said, will you partner with me? And Abraham said yes, which was a good answer. And so Abraham went, except for very, 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 very quickly, Abraham stuffed it up. And, And we see Abraham going, oh man, that wasn't quite what it looks like to partner with God. But each time he stuffs it up, he stumbles onward to godliness, to discipleship. And we see in Abraham whom God replies to this stumbling and says, I will bless you as you partner with me. I will bless you as you pursue relationship and partnership with me. And there was one blessing above all that Abraham desired. And this blessing was a son, an heir. His wife was barren. They were steadily getting older. And decades passed with no result. And then Genesis 21 begins. And it tells us that a son was born to Sarah, a miracle son. And if this was a Disney movie, This would be where it ends. Pops up, they all lived happily ever after. Except it's not. It's the scriptures, it's reality. And so unfortunately, our Bibles have to include Genesis 22. I don't know if you're allowed to say unfortunately something's included in the Bible, (laughs) but don't throw me out. Um, And it starts with this. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am. He replied, and God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there. 
This isn't a Disney movie. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. This is not a Disney movie. There's something happening here. It gets heavy quickly. So how about we pray together and see what God has to say. Invite him in. Oh, holy God, we just praise you that you're an active and present force in this room, that your spirit has purpose to do something in this place from before the very foundations of earth, and you know every name, every seat, every story in this room, and you have said, I am about to do a good thing. God, we praise you for your scripture. We praise you for your goodness. We praise you that you continue to be a loving and wonderful God, even when we read difficult texts in the Bible, and we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would stir something in us, that we would leave this place more in love with you you and confident of your love for us. We praise you, God, that you are good. And Jesus, we thank you for your blood, which helps us be trusting and confident that we can enter your presence and know your goodness personally. We love you, Jesus, and in your mighty name we pray. Amen. You know those moments when like the coins fall off your eyes and you suddenly realize how deep a ditch you've dug for yourself, like how absolutely messed up life has gotten suddenly? Maybe not. Let me tell you, about this time last year, I, I planned, well, I didn't. I was invited on a hike with a bunch of my friends. Now, I don't ask questions because I can't be bothered to listen to answers sometimes. So I just said, sure, let's go on a hike. We get out the car, we get, we get on the hike, we start walking. I thought, how hard can this be? You walk foot after foot. I do this in cities. I can do this out in nature. And so we start walking, and about halfway up this hike, I suddenly clicked something in my head and did the most awful thing I could have done, probably the worst thing I've done in my whole life. I looked down, and I realized that on this mountain, which we had climbed almost like, is that vertically? Vertically, for like a solid 10 or 15 minutes on gravel, at any minute, I could just slip, smash my face, and just keep going until I'm dead. And I thought, oh no, this is not how I wanted to end. But my good and wonderful friends decided to egg me on anyway. And they said, David, don't be a wimp, get up here. And so I started going one foot after the other, very timidly at first, until I slowly got more and more confident. Unfortunately, I got so confident that uh, I, I chose to follow the group Muppet who climbed up a bit of it that he wasn't meant to go up. And because he was proficient, he got to jump off it quickly. But because I'm not proficient, I got stuck. And suddenly in that moment, I realized I was going to die. And I thought to myself, why on earth am I hanging off the side of a, of a mountain about to end it all? And I thought, ah. Oh, it's because I was so afraid of, of failing my friends, of looking silly in front of my friends. Suddenly, I'm in this overly dramatized situation where actually I was perfectly fine, to be honest. But in the moment, I did not feel fine. I was so afraid of failing my friends. I was so afraid of failing the cool test or failing the character test that I put myself in a place where I felt very uncomfortable. But it's crazy, right? We hate failing. We hate failing. Right? Like, it's not like, am I the only, is it like, nah, David, it's just you, you hate failing, we love it, we love to fail. No, we hate it, right? And I think this is why we hate tests. Like, nobody hates a test they think they're going to ace. Like, nobody goes, oh, I hate tests, I don't want to do a test, I'm going to ace it too much. Like, you know, we love the test we're going to pass and absolutely kick. What we don't love is the test we think we might fail. And this is why, when we read 22, it says, sometime later, God tested Abraham. Suddenly we start to feel a little bit uncomfortable. 
suddenly we start to feel kind of tight. God tests us. God tests us. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if you stand me next to God, I don't pass the test. There's no measure, no shape, no angle that tests our past before my God. And so I hear God testing me, and I wrestled for the past couple of weeks with this scripture, and I have struggled with this question. Why would a loving God try to test us? Is he trying to catch us out, kick us down, find any excuse to throw us out of this circle? What is God up to? Surely life is hard enough without an added layer of testing. But like most of Genesis, this story is worded in an intentional way to teach us something about the character of God and what it looks like for us to partner with him. And we find the hinge to understand this story properly in, the, in a weird phrase. The phrase is, your son, your only son. And when we follow this, we find what is really happening here. In verse 2, it starts off by saying, then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. I love that he has to clarify whom his only son is, that he loves a lot. It's Isaac, by the way. And go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. The first time we see this phrase, your son, your only son, it's saying this, take him. Take your son, your only son. Now, a few weeks ago, you would have heard an amazing sermon about another son that Abraham had. And so maybe you're wondering what's going on here. In chapter 21, straight after um, Isaac is born, we see this story happen where God calls Abraham into his presence and says, Abraham, I need you to trust me. You see, earlier on, Abraham had decided to take the promise of a son into his own hands, but he had done it in a way that God didn't plan it. He went ahead and had a child with somebody that wasn't his wife. And it caused a whole heap of abuse and pain and brokenness in and throughout the story and the family. And in 21, after Isaac is born, God says, now I'm going to take this one. I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to bring it to completion. I'm going to close this story. Would you open your palm? Would you open the palm of your hand and let me take your plan B? And sure enough, Abraham slowly opens the palms of his hands and says, God, I will trust your promise and I will trust you. And so suddenly... Isaac truly is his only son. Sarah's beyond birthing age, and on top of that, she couldn't have babies anyway. She was barren. Isaac was a miracle child. There's no more plan Bs. And when God is saying, take your son, your only son, Abraham knows exactly how important that is. In fact, in verse 10, he actually goes on to trust God and actually do it. Then he, Abraham, reached out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. And maybe you're in this room and you're like, what, what is wrong with Abraham, right? Like, why would he do that? That's actually absurd. Like, why would he step in and do that? Did he not love? Maybe, maybe it was still a newborn. Like, did he not love Isaac? What's going on here? What, like, how could he do that? I'm going to point out a couple of things real quick. I want to humanize Abraham so we don't flow through this story and think of him as a machine or a typewriter. He wasn't just some see-through character. He was a human being like you or I in relation, in partnership with God. And it says this, Abraham, in 6 to 7, it says, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son, Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. The two of them went on together, and Isaac spoke up. 
He said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Two things, real quick. Isaac's carrying firewood. I don't know how you carry firewood, it's whatever. You know, Isaac's carrying firewood. Like, things like this. Isaac's carrying firewood, right? Like, I don't know if you've ever tried to load a baby up with firewood, but it doesn't go well, and they ain't going to carry it up a mountain. But second of all, Isaac speaks, and he doesn't speak nonsense. He actually makes a lot of sense. One, two, three, four. Wait a minute. There's something missing in this sacrifice. What's going on here? Like, Isaac is not a child here. In fact, most scholars believe he was probably in his early teens. And I want to tell you what that means for Abraham. That means he had laughed with Isaac. He had learned to love Isaac. That means he and Isaac had dreamt together. Isaac himself had visions and trusted the promises God had brought about and promised to him and knew his life was destined for something beautiful. Abraham would have loved, loved, loved his son. And even in verse 2, we see God say it himself, take your son, your only son, whom you love. The the final story in chapter 21 shows us something uh, interesting. It shows us that God had blessed Abraham above abundantly, like ridiculously. Like in the final story in 21, we see Abraham actually negotiating with a king and having the pull. The king, the king actually panders to him. You know, he's like, can you stop annoying my people, my farmers? It's getting annoying now. Can you, you know, work with me here? And Abraham turns around and goes, sure, if you leave my well alone. And the king is like, anything, sure. We see this absolute moment where Abraham's authority in the area is displayed. God had blessed Abraham abundantly in all the ways he had promised to. And the the capstone of this blessing was this son, Isaac. And what we see God doing is he steps in and he says something like this. Now that you've got everything you want, now that you've got worldly security and blessing, will you still partner with me? Or is there nothing left this vending machine can give you? New Life Brisbane, today we live in Australia. We live, I presume, pretty comfortable, though never easy, but pretty comfortable comparatively lives. Generally speaking, we have some financial security. Generally speaking, we have some health. Generally speaking, we have some popularity, some applause, some promotion. Generally speaking, we are a people of prosperity comparatively to the world. And I believe today God is asking us the same question. Will we still partner with God? Will we take our only son, our only security, our only finance, will we take that thing, you know, our giftings, our lives, our entire being, and will we say, yes, God, I lay it before you. I take it and I I don't withhold it. I give it to you. Or will we today say, no, God, that's uncomfortable. That test is too much. Maybe in this room you reply, like, absolutely not. I would not partner with God today. Not if he's the kind of God who's going to test his his followers in such a dramatic and barbaric way. Asking someone to sacrifice their own child, how could you possibly trust this God? And so verse 11, it, it continues and says this, But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he said. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Don't do anything to him. 
Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your son, your only son. And then we see that phrase again. It's a weird phrase and it keeps coming up. But in this particular use, it's not saying, take your son, your only son. It's a celebration that he didn't withhold from God his son, his only son. And it circles this idea that Abraham feared God. I don't know if you guys are like me, I find that phrase, fearing God, confusing. I've heard a bunch of explanations for it, and I have to be real, like, I I had to Google this, I went to someone smarter than me, I don't know if you know who John Piper is, but he's smarter than me, and he said it this way, fearing God is corresponding, or in the Bible, corresponding with humility, lowliness, and sensitivity of heart. If you go through the Proverbs, you see the phrase, uh, fear of God, it comes up all the time. And when it does come up, you often see it pitched against the idea of hardness of heart. In other words, to fear God is to sit before God in the gentle softness of our hearts and let him be who he is. No longer trying to take control, not trying to define his narrative, but saying you are God. It is to recognize the great power and the wonder of his character both his great power as a mighty force, but not to live in some petrified fear that he might squash us, but also to know his character. In other words, to fear God is to say this. If God says, I forgive you, we say, I am forgiven. If God says, I love you, we say, we are loved. If God says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, we say, I will not be abandoned. If God says, you are my church, Brisbane, and I will work through you and in you today in this place, we believe that God is gonna work in us and through us today in this place. That's what fearing God looks like. It's to trust that he is who he is and let him be himself. Not trying to stomp on him, not trying to step on him. And this is what Abraham understood. And that is why in the New Testament commentary on this story in Hebrews, it displays what was happening in in, um, Abraham's heart. It says in verse 17 in chapter 11, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises, what promises? Throughout the earlier parts of his story, by name, By the name Isaac, God had promised to bless the entire world and Abraham's family. He had embraced the promises and yet was about to sacrifice his one and only son. See that kind of phrase again. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Guys, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. That's an insane level of faith. Abraham never went up that mountain expecting to leave without Isaac. That's insanity. Like, let's read the story again. Genesis 22, 3 to 5. Early the next morning, Abraham got up. He loaded his donkey. He took with him two servants and his son, of course. When he had cut enough wood for the offering, he set out to the place God told him. On the third day, Abraham looked up, saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, check it, ready? Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. We will worship, then we will come back to you. Genesis 2, 7, 8, is that Isaac speaking. He says, Father, yes, my son, the fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God 
himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Even now, Abraham was certain his God would intervene. Abraham had no thought that he was leaving that mountain without his son, Isaac. Why? Because Abraham feared God. Because Abraham feared God. He knew how great his God was. He knew how loving his God was. He knew that his, if his God defined himself as faithful and kind, then his God was faithful and kind. He knew that if his God defined himself as a promise keeper, then his God was a promise keeper. He knew if his God defined his son as one he would use to bless the world, then his son would be used to bless the world. Abraham feared God, and he knew who he was. And so, in that space we recognize that God wasn't testing Abraham by saying, are you good enough? He was saying, will you trust me? Do you know who I am yet? Totally changes the narrative. Totally changes the story. The narrative scripture has literally never been find your way to being self-sufficient, find your way to being strong enough, to being the one who can do it on your own. The narrative of scripture has always been learn to let God be enough for you, learn to let God be sufficient. That is the story of the Bible and there is no test you will find that contradicts that. We fear tests because we fear failing them. We're afraid we're not strong enough or good enough or faithful enough, but God isn't using tests to grade us. He's using tests to grow us. He's using tests to teach us that he is enough and to raise our souls into a place where we faithfully step out in response to that. You know, when I asked that question before, are we gonna partner God today? If you, like me, responded, well, how do I trust him? How do I trust a God who would say such a barbaric thing? Here's what we did in that moment. We defined our God by the test. We defined our God by the circumstance. We defined our God by what we see and our fear and what was going on in the moment. But I think Abraham had a different way of approaching that. See, he knew his God, and he knew his God was good. He knew his God wasn't a liar, and he knew his God by name had made great promises to him, right? And so when Abraham heard the test, he didn't define his God by the test. He defined the test by his God. He recognized this test was not about, you know, God's not some evil God for making this happen. He recognized that this test must not be quite what it seems because it doesn't reflect who his God is. And everyone in this room would relate that testing and trials and pain is a part of life. Everyone in this room has suffered. And unfortunately, everyone in this room is probably still going through some form of suffering. My question is a room into myself so deeply is how do we approach that suffering with such a high and beautiful view of the God of the Bible, not the God of Simpsons, not the God of Facebook, the God of the Bible, that when we see these moments come, we aim to find our, our perspective on God by those circumstances, but we respond to those circumstances with the promises of God. Do we know our God today? Exodus 35, six to seven, God is merciful, God is compassionate. He is slow to anger. He abounds in love. He abounds in faithfulness. Do we hear this? Think about it, Uh, fruits of the spirit. When God comes close, what does he say? He says, as I draw near to you, you will experience love, joy, peace, patience, and there's a bunch of others, I don't remember them. Here's the thing, in in John uh, 3, 16, who does our God show himself to be? For God so loved the world 
that he gave his one and only son, that we his people may not perish, but may have everlasting life. In 1 John, it says that God is love. In 1 Corinthians, it defines that same word love as God is patient, God is kind, God is not irritable, God is not arrogant, he isn't boasting, he bears all things, he's not getting angry quickly with us. God or love never fails. My friends, do we know our God today? Because sure as heck we know our suffering. Sure as heck we know our pain, the tests, and the difficulties. And so will we partner with God today? Will we lay down that thing, that security, that hope, whatever that ultimate prize that we think to ourselves, God, you can have it all, but you can't have that. If we think to ourselves, if we lose this, I lose myself, I lose my hope, I lose my freedom, I lose my joy. Could we take that thing, our son, our only son, whatever it is for us, the final hope, the bedrock, then the plan B, and could we say, God, I will not withhold this from you because I know who you are. And I know that you are a better and more infinitely invested God in our goodness and our profit than this thing is. Corey Ten Boom says this, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Never be afraid to trust our unknown futures to a known God. Whenever God tests us by telling us to go in obedience, he's teaching us how to open our hands and say, God, I trust you. I know that you are gonna provide. And God ain't looking for us to white knuckle, be strong enough and succeed. He's looking for us to be the kind of people who says, God, it's not my success, but yours. I know who you are and I'm gonna hold to that and I'm gonna walk through this test, head held high, knowing that God, you could even raise us from the dead. If so, you willed it. Which what that means to us is that when God brings us tests, he's testing himself. What that tells us is that when God comes and tests us, if he's encouraging us to trust him, then really he's putting himself to the test. He's putting to test his promises, putting to test his character, putting to the test his provision, putting to the test everything he's ever said. And he's saying, my friends, I won't fail this test. And he never does. Are we gonna define the moments in our lives that we go through? Are we gonna define the trials by our God today? Are we gonna learn the art of knowing our God so well by leaning into spiritual practices, leaning into scripture, leaning into the great traditions of relationship partnership with God in such a way that we know our God so well that there's no trial we will face today that can undo our certainty in the promise of God. My friends, we are all chosen. We are all wanted, we are all saved, we are all beloved. He is not abandoning us, he is not forsaking us. He has adopted us, he has created us for good works. We are his artwork, his workmanship. We are gifted, we are abundantly blessed. Do we believe today in the promises of God and face our life in response to these? Because the story goes on. It tells us about a ram that was caught in a thicket. And I didn't know what a thicket was because I'm a bit of a thicket myself. And so I Googled it, and it said a thicket was a tightly, uh, like a tight clump of trees. And it was this ram whose horns had been stuck in it. And Abraham identified the ram, and God called him to replace the sacrifice of Isaac with this ram. Just like Abraham had predicted in confidence in God, God 
provided the sacrifice. For us today, we don't lean on a ram caught in a thicket to replace, uh, you know, the sacrifice or whatnot. We don't lean on a, on a ram caught in a thicket to guarantee our promises. We have the Lamb of God who gave his life upon a tree he created. Right, check this, guys. It's so important we get this. In him, we see the true love of God, the pursuit of relationship, his character, his promises, his faithfulness to each and every human. Every person in this room he has displayed his kindness to without hesitation and without limits upon that cross. And what we see is the ultimate test is that he has not withheld from us, his son, his only son, Jesus. That is our confidence. That is why we leave this place with a newfound love of God and confidence in his love for us. That is why we will worship profoundly and confidently. This is why when we encounter the God of relationship, everything shifts and changes because how can it not? If he truly is who he says it is, nothing will ever be the same. We no longer need to live in fear. We no longer need that crutch because if we use the crutch, we'll never learn to walk. We gotta lay it down. We gotta find that thing that's our ultimate prize, our ultimate blocker, the ultimate thing that God's saying, would you even let, would you not withhold that from me? And we gotta say, truly in our hearts, I know who you are, God, so profoundly well, I will not withhold it from you. And I know you ain't about my failure. I know you're not about my, my, my doom and gloom. I know that you're for me and you have got me and the Bible and the word you've written for me attest to this. I pray that it would be more than the word of God that attests to this. I pray for New Life Brisbane, it would be more than the, the word of God that attests to this. I pray the experience we have of relationship with God would work to attest to this truth. That as we put to test God as he puts to test us, as we put to test the promises of God, the character of God and the goodness of God, we will see him win every single time. And then we no longer have to kind of hope willy-nilly. We step forward saying, God, I've seen it with my own eyes. You're not a God who fails your people. You're a God I can stand firm on. So perhaps in this room, you know, there, there are a group of responses we could have to this, but maybe in this room you're thinking to yourself, I'm terrified of the idea of God testing me. I'm terrified to fail God. I'm terrified of letting him down when the test comes. Or maybe you're in this room and you've heard the grace of God so many times that you think, yeah, let him test me. He'll forgive me when I don't try. Maybe you're in this room and you think to yourself, I try and I try, but I fail to trust him. I fail to go on. I fail. Like Abraham stumbled, I'm stumbling. And no matter how hard I try, every time push comes to shove, I find myself trusting me and not him. And I don't know how to shift that. Or maybe you've never even heard of this God before to begin with. Maybe the idea of a good, loving creator pursuing partnership and relationship is foreign to your mind and heart. And for each of us, we actually have the same call, the same response. As a bold congregation, we're invited to put to test and respond to this test right now. What if God was looking to form something in this room? What if this was a moment that God was saying, I want you to put to test who I am. I want you to get to know my character. I want you to get to know that I am a good God and a loving God. What if God was saying in this moment right now, whether your heart is hard, unheard of, or apathetic, God was saying today, I want you to know who I am because who I am is comprehensively the answer to the struggle you're going through. 
And what if this moment we could take our pride and all of our arrogance? What if in this moment we could take our fear of looking stupid and all of our fear of man? What if in this moment we could take whatever it is that blocks us and makes us think, oh, I don't know, I'm feeling squirmish. Hey, I'm bored, I'm apathetic, whatever it might be. We take that and we lay it before God. We do not withhold it from the cross. And we take a moment to lean in and say, I take this, sec- this second to say, God, show me who you are in truth my heart turned towards you. Open my eyes to see the scriptures I've heard a thousand times, the gospels that have been preached in here a thousand times. Open my eyes to know your love and your wonder and what it means for me to be yours. And so I'm gonna invite us to do something that may be crazy for some people, may be normal for others. In a moment, I'm gonna invite us as we're able to kneel. And I'm gonna pray a short prayer and then I'm gonna leave it silent for a minute. And in that silence, I'm going to invite us to start seeking God. To open our hearts and say, God, could you be that good? God, could you truly be that beautiful? Could I truly trust your character that cohesively? And in that moment, I know God says yes. And I pray our hearts would be soft. So as we're able, how about we do that now? Maybe you're unable, just raise your hands out in front of you. Oh, holy God, we thank you that you are who you say you are. You're as good and better than we could ever imagine, that your wonder is without ceasing, that you, God, are are so present and persistent to pursue relationship with your people, partnership with this church, these each and every individual in this room, God, that though every one of us are test failures, you are a test passer, that in the name of Jesus, the ultimate test was totally passed and released to us. God, I praise you for who you are, and I praise you that your spirit is at work in this room, and I pray our hearts will be upturned as you speak for the next moment. Come and move, God. Let us leave this place singing.